Welcome, friends, to a Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast. We are bringing the power of prevention to you. My name's Curtis Kopotic. I am your host, and I'm joined with my co-host, Amber Brown. Amber, how are you? Good morning, Curtis. I'm doing very well. It's still a little bit chilly here in Minnesota, but pretty excited for this first interview that we have today. I'm so excited, too, because we have John Groves with us. He is currently the CEO of Fit for Work, and he's had a really interesting background. A lot of people don't realize and think about. Actually got his bachelor's in athletic training. Then he went on to do his master's in PT at the Mayo Clinic, and then went on to get his doctorate at Regis University. And through a bunch of fun circumstances, which we're going to listen to, he fell in love with the idea of helping people get better. And so why are you excited to have him as our first guest? You know, Curtis, I'm pretty excited to hear his perspective on the fit for work model as far as working more on the preventative side and getting away from the reactive side when it comes to injuries in the workplace. Definitely. And that's just such a huge problem. And he's just got a lot of great insights because he's been doing this for so long. And he just really has a forward thinking mind. And that's what I really appreciate about Fit for Work. So definitely someone else to pay attention to is how can we have a different mindset and not have that same old reactive mindset, like you were saying, having that forward thinking mind. So another really important part that I love is that he really emphasizes the individual and so why did you get into healthcare? And I'm sure the reason was something like, because it was all about the numbers for you, right? Yeah, right. no, <laughs> I'm definitely not a numbers person, which is probably why I went into healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> definitely more just being able to help people in their circumstances. Definitely. And that's what I love about his mindset is really, we're going to hear a lot of great information about taking care of that one person, the person that sometimes we can be lost or forgotten, and that every single person that we work with is important and should be given the best care possible. So here you go, John Groves, CEO of fit for work I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast, John. And as always, I also have joined with me my co-host, Amber. So welcome to you both. Hello, hello. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you. So I just want to let you know, John, is my first question. I don't know if you remember this, but it was about five years ago today that you interviewed me to get hired with Groves Work Ready. Oh, boy. And I thought it would be appropriate to ask you one of the questions you asked me. <laughs> oh, dear. So to start us off, if you could be a pie, what kind of pie would you be and why? <laughs> Ooh, I'd be... Coconut cream, because that's my favorite. That's, oh, uh, why not? You can't, you can't get around coconut cream. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Sounds like a beach in a pie tin. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> in all actuality, that wasn't a question you asked me, fortunately. I don't remember, but I am grateful that you did hire me all those many years ago. As am I. Good. That's the even better <laughs> response right there. What I wanted to do today is introduce the idea and kind of talk about our current healthcare system. And the way I kind of see our healthcare system, and I'm sure most people would agree with this, is that it's a very reactive healthcare system. How do you think we got into the state that we're at where we're treating things in a very reactive manner? Well, I think in general, the healthcare system is incentivized to do things to people. There's really not a lot of incentive to do nothing to folks. And so 
When you look at that process and system building upon itself, naturally, we as humans are incentivized to do what we're incentivized to do. And so when uh, patients come into the healthcare system, obviously that's what those people are there to do. The physicians and the nurses and the therapists and the, all the clinicians out there is to do something to folks and try to solve that issue. And I think that the fact that there really is no industry built around demedicalizing people really leads to where we're at today, which is a highly reactive system that is growing and expanding and becoming more and more complicated and costly. Until we change that paradigm, I don't see that stopping. Definitely. And so what would you say inspired you? And because you were a physical therapist for how many years? Well, I was a physical therapist starting in uh, 2002 before I started Fit for Work. So, you know, we started about six years before I started Groves Work Ready, which was a licensee of Fit for Work. But I had outpatient physical therapy practices here in the Twin Cities at that time, too. And I think the biggest thing for me as I started to dabble in the injury prevention is, for me, I felt like there was such a bigger and more clear difference in helping companies prevent employees from becoming patients versus treating them. And that's not to throw stones at those that do, that's fine. But for me, I liked the clarity of the impact that we were making. It was so clear when you prevent an injury, the impact. And sometimes once an injury exists, it's very subjective whether you're getting that person better than somebody else would or a different strategy would. You know, trying to get the genie back in the bottle is always a little messy. So I liked how results-based it was and how disruptive it was in a sense of you just prevent all the downstream costs by never having the issue. An insurance broker that is a good friend of mine and work with, he always says, what's the cost of the claim that never occurred? And that's exactly what got my interest in this prevention world. Awesome. So is this from an insurance broker that inspired you to get into the prevention side? Well, that's ironic. <laughs> no, I, I, I was in the prevention side. I think I might have inspired him in some of his endeavors. He's actually quite a clever guy. That was through prevention and some people out there looking for different strategies to bring to clients. And he recognized our strategy as being something very, very different for the reasons that we're talking about, where it's based on prevention versus trying to make post-injury process cheaper. Definitely. And so how did you get involved with that at the time? You were for Groves Work Ready, but you heard about Fit for Work. So how did that process come about too? And then what did you like about the Fit for Work model that you would even want to be a licensee of them? You know, when I was in grad school at the Mayo Clinic, I always had a strong interest in industrial physical therapy or industrial prevention, ergonomics, those types of things. And there was a rotation while I was at the Mayo Clinic uh, where I was able to participate in that. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for. That was more work hardening, but I did get to dabble in some of the prevention pieces. And then as my career went on, I started some physical therapy practices and, you know, focusing and standing up, you know, some outpatient physical therapy practices takes about everything you have. And so I got away from prevention piece and was going into postgraduate residency and fellowship programs so that I could become, I guess, the, you know, the best clinician possible so I could be the best at stuff in the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And through that process down in Texas, uh, I went on to do some residency and fellowship hours of training with a clinician down there who is now a good friend of mine, Dr. Andrew Bennett. Um, he introduced me to a company called Fit for Work. The, I mean, they had just acquired, and he said, man, this is really cool. They prevent injuries. And if you talk about you know, your interest in that, you should talk to them. And that was it. I, within three minutes, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. Of course, I was extreme on a postdoctoral fellowship for clinical skills, so I had to kind of finish that out over the next couple of years. But I immediately put things into action so I could move towards the prevention side of things. Now, that's really awesome to be able to have that connection and to take that opportunity when it presented itself and just kind of rang true. So why is it that you think the physical, the manual labor jobs, any of these that we've considered the more labor jobs, 
need fit for work so much? I do think, again, the whole system is set up to once you have an injury, there's all sorts of options and things. And sometimes you could kind of look at it in a negative tone. The sharks are waiting for them, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things. Once you're hurt, man, the medical system is waiting for you and there's no shortage of options for them. And so I think when you look at it from that perspective, I always, I guess I feel like a lot of ways in wellness and injury prevention, the folks in repetitive and physical environments are often the forgotten folks. If you want to go into the wellness realm, you can look at how complex and complicated some of the wellness strategies are. They're all computer driven and they add more buttons to their websites and things like that. And meanwhile, the folks that we're interacting with who are out in the field in the physical and repetitive environments, they don't have access to a computer on an hourly or daily basis at work. So, you know, they kind of get left behind there. And I think in terms of getting in, you know, once they have a soreness, ache and a pain, the system is, well, anybody has a soreness and ache and a pain, you put them into the medical system. That's the strategy. It's a symptom response kind of a reactive driven process. And the reality is, is, you know, some of these guys and gals, as you well know, are working in very physical and rugged environments. Some of them are lifting 20, 30,000 pounds a day. And I don't think the average person really understands some of the rigors that face this population. So I do think that in some ways they're a forgotten population. And everybody sits and talks about numbers and, and production and dollars and this and that. And meanwhile, at the heart of it all is a human being that does more physical repetitive work than anybody around them and that anybody really has any awareness that, that happens. And at the end of the day, once they have an issue, they kind of throw them in the medical system and then it's next man up. And so I think it's kind of a forgotten population from that perspective. Yeah, and I really love how you talk about the individual because it's not that just individual that's involved, right? It's who they associate with, who they're taking care of, and then there's just more people that lives are effective besides that one individual that can be so easily forgotten. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, we look at the individual that we can interface with, but then their families, you know, their husbands, their wives, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers. And so while Sometimes I do think when you look at the physical, you know, like the sprains and the strains that come from the physical and repetitive work, I think people look at that and say, well, yeah, you know, that's not like heart attacks or it's not like getting crushed by a machine or something as traumatic as that. And that's all true. It's not that traumatic. No one ever died from a musculoskeletal injury, <laughs> fortunately. fortunately. However, it does change the, well, I should say they haven't had issues like that directly from a musculoskeletal issue, but it does change the course of their lives rather dramatically and can impact them rather dramatically. If you're in a physical and repetitive environment and that's how you're going to make your living throughout your career and you get a flat tire and somebody throws you off to the side and now you're stuck in the system, there's a lot of things that can start happening to you, including not being able to earn money, not being able to continue to work where you're at and not being able to get the good paying jobs. And so that's a big, big problem, not to mention maybe getting exposed to opioids and getting hooked onto that or getting over-surgicized or over-imaged and getting it in their head that, oh man, you know, I have all these things wrong with me and I'm stuck in this environment. That's a vicious cycle that doesn't serve anybody, at least on the employee side, certainly serves the medical side very well. So I think, you know, those are some of the pieces where these are people, while they're not heart attacks and they're not, you know, getting crushed by a machine, it, it is very impactful. And by the way, for companies, it's usually about half to three quarters of their losses every year. So it's not as if wow. that this is 10% of their issue. This is often their number one cost. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's a big deal. And the good news is the vast majority of these are preventable. 
And that's what Fit for Work does. Yeah, John, in, in talking about some of these workplace injury soreness, things like that, can you tell us a little bit about early intervention? It's one of our kind of keywords here and what the indirect benefits of seeking out someone um, or having someone seek us out for that early intervention. Yeah, early intervention, as we use that term, is you know some having a provider, a musculoskeletal expert, we call them on-site injury prevention specialists, directly on site at a particular client, whether they're in the construction industry, whether they're in the warehousing and distribution or manufacturing, and they're out interacting with the employees to prevent the employee from becoming a patient. And how we break that down is we look at it from a three leading indicator standpoint. So early soreness, ergonomics, and behaviors. And I think a lot of times when this is conceptualized, they think of it as a symptom response process only, right? And that's really drawn from the $3.5 trillion medical system, right? I mean, once there's a symptom or a problem, boy, now you've got action plans. And, and while that is a component of what we do, and we do react to symptoms when people have early symptoms, and we do so much earlier than typical, and that's a good thing, but it's still, you know, in a sense, reactive. And so what I think is important when you look at early intervention is it's not just a symptom response process. Because if you just set it up to say, all right, well, we're going to have someone respond to your symptoms early, you know, early is good. But that still is, you know, incumbent upon somebody saying, hey, I'm, you've let me get sore enough to a point where things have gotten bad enough, now I'm sore. So we not only look at it from a symptom response process, but also what about the people who aren't complaining? Or what about the other leading indicators? So ergonomics and behaviors. Maybe you have someone who's five foot five. Maybe you have someone who's six foot five, all in the same job. What ergonomic challenges can you abate by looking at it from an ergonomic standpoint? And then even that, if you get ergonomics set up, what about best practice behaviors, work practices, making sure people are moving correctly? And there's a lot to be gained there. You're not going to ever wave your magic wand and say, now everybody's, you know, lifting correctly and they're not going to bend and twist and do you know, some of those maladaptive behaviors that we don't want. That's a war that you certainly have to wage. It's not one that you should ever expect to win, but you can make meaningful impact in getting better behaviors out of them if you stay consistent with that. So from an early intervention standpoint, Again, we look at that a complete package of early soreness, ergonomics, and behaviors. And a lot of people are really surprised that most of our interactions are actually with people who have never complained. And I'll say that again. We interact with people who don't complain. And that is the paradigm shifter for kind of the aha moment for those, you know, what I would say enlightened clients that go, oh, yes, that's where we got to focus on that rather than just constantly focusing on once someone's injured, let's do something about it. So that's how we look at early intervention. And I think then you ask some of the direct or indirect benefits. I think the direct benefits are obviously you can reduce the injury. But indirect, you know, I think the biggest thing and maybe what you're driving at there is it's a cultural impact to have somebody that understands your world when you're in this forgotten population doing physical and repetitive work. And you have a third party medical that's on site, understands your work, is there every day knows you probably personally, and they have them out into the world, that's a whole different experience than the rest of their interface with the rest of the medical system, which is when you're hurt, come on in. Otherwise, I don't want to hear from you. This is very different. It turns that whole thing on its head, and uh, we come to them before there's an issue and try to help them with things both inside and outside of work. So I think the indirect benefits are, you know, they go, wow, that's a quite a difference in terms of an experience. And it lets them know that their employer actually cares and that they have an advocate for them out there in the world when they probably have felt like for years and years they didn't. So I think culturally, there's always a big impact 
because the workforce really loves this program. Exactly. I just had one of those conversations last night as far as just listening and and that your employer loves you. Yep. <laughs> so it definitely is an impact. Yeah, certainly not all employers do this. And there's more and more that are aware that it's a logical strategy and that it's a cash positive strategy, gives them a good ROI. And some of those financial aspects, which make it worth doing, but they're also, there's more and more starting to realize, okay, let's talk about the employee's experience too, because people are starting to understand competition for the same workforce is not getting easier, it's getting harder. So those that take care of their populations the best are going to win. And over time, there's not going to be more and more workers, there's going to be less and less. And so those that invest in keeping the people they have and getting the new talent in the door and taking care of them once they get there, they're going to win. And you're starting to see employers turn on to that. And early intervention is a great way to do that, especially when you go back to, you know, over half of the losses are typically, especially in these physical and repetitive environments, are attributed to musculoskeletal issues. And so addressing that head on is a really good strategy and it's becoming more and more recognized. We will get back to the rest of our interview in a moment, but I want to ask you, if you would like to get ahead of injuries versus trying to play catch up with them at your business, Fit for Work can partner with you to prevent injuries before they even happen. With over 750 sites and 20 years of experience, we have helped countless companies of all shapes and sizes do exactly that. We can guide you to systematically lower your company's injuries with four easy steps, on-site early intervention, industrial ergonomics, employee testing, and safety compliance. Go to our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on the Connect With Us button to learn more. I think my favorite part, when I'm doing a new hire training, and I'm introducing the Fit for Work program to this group of new hires, and I'll have some people that have been in the warehouse setting or you know industrial setting for 10, 15 years, and their first thing that comes in their head is, where were you at my other sites? Why am I just hearing? Why is this just an option? <laughs> and so I definitely agree. And I see that yearning that they've had for this type of, just to know that somebody cares about them, even when they don't feel like they need to record it and go to the doctor, but they're still having some issues. There are still things that they're facing and challenges that they have. So kind of with that mentality, when you look at the different populations we deal with some, you would say that I mean, you're dealing with both fit for work employees as well as, you know, the management, as well as those who are doing the work, you know, the employees. How did you find it challenging or helpful when you were working with those different clients to get the message across of letting them help you or of you being an asset to them, of them being okay with you helping them and not being, oh, you know, apprehensive to use the program? What's the hardest part starting off? Are you talking about the apprehensiveness at maybe a management level from when we're trying to sell the program, so to speak? Or are you talking about when you're talking on a one-to-one -one with the employees out on the floor? So we'll start with the employees, but then I want to get to the management as well. But how do you work with them to get them to trust you? Is it something you found really challenging or they're just like, hey, this is great. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be the first employee to use this service. Yeah, you know, no, it's not. I think that's often a common question for an employer when they're looking at this and saying, yeah, you know, we've got a we've got a tough workforce here or we got a stoic workforce or they're not going to trust you. We've had a program similar or we did this and that. And as you guys well know, uh, when you start with a new site, it's often just the opposite. People coming out of the woodwork and people flocking to it. You get a couple wins and away you go and it spreads through the facility like wildfire. So we never have an issue, you know, with getting people to try it. I think intuitively it just makes a lot of sense. 
it's not the norm, right? Preventative maintenance on human beings is not the norm in the United States, which is kind of odd. You know, it is done without thought for machines. But when it comes to humans, it's just like, wait till you break down and then get out of here and we'll put somebody else in there. No wonder it costs so much. So, you know, getting people to trust. I think when you think about trust, though, at the level of the employee, when you're out interacting with the specific individual employees, you know, trust has, you know, two components to that. And it's competence and empathy. And so empathy isn't sympathy. Empathy is understanding the other person's scenario. And that's a heck of a lot easier for that component to happen because they know we know we're in their environment. We're in the freezers where it's 20 below. We're there at midnight when, you know, they're working and they don't think the rest of the world knows about them. We're where they are. You know, we're out in the field. We're in the trenches with them. So they know we get it. And then in terms of competence, being third-party medical, blending our, our knowledge, our musculoskeletal knowledge in with the OSHA and industrial knowledge, those are the two components for the underpinnings of trust. And then I always found just being extremely transparent and extremely authentic, like, look, the worst that can happen here is you come to me and you're sore and you leave and you're sore and I didn't help you. That's the worst that can happen. The best thing that can happen is you come to me and you've been struggling with something and we can change some things up so you don't have to struggle with that anymore. And you don't even have to leave your job. You don't have to pay a copay. You don't have to do anything. You can just keep work. I'll come to you. You know, you don't even have to take time out of your day. I'll find you. I'm responsible for that. And I'll help you. And I don't care if it's midnight and we're in the freezer and it's 20 below or whatever the situation is. Here I come. And so I think when you kind of get all that, you know, transferred to a couple folks and that then transfers itself throughout the entire facility, it's very easy to get people to engage because they see it for what it is. It's a very large process. It's actually so simple. It's <laughs> complicated in a sense because conceptually it's very simple to do it this way. It's just not the norm in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. And even at one of the sites that I'm at, it's become such the norm that they hardly even use a sign-up sheet anymore. It's more of a, they see me there and they just, you know, start asking the questions once I'm there and on site. So it's not really even anything that they have to do or take care of. We're on site and they can ask the questions away. So definitely, definitely see, see that vision there. And so for, as far as going on now to the employees, to the management, to getting them to kind of trust our service as well and to be that asset for us, how is that, you know, what are challenges and how has that been received in general in your experience? <laughs> it's actually a lot easier to get the employees to understand it once it's, you know, in place and there and they can see it and touch it and feel it. It makes a ton of sense, intuitive sense to the employees. In terms of getting an organization to go through the paradigm shift of paying for prevention, you know, you think about that. It's That's what you're doing. You're paying for prevention. And so the companies have to pay for injuries to be put back together again. I mean, they have to. Whether or not they budgeted for it or not, they're paying for it. And it's interesting because, you know, you see companies that might, you know, a location might lose $200,000 one year and the next year lose $1.4 million. How the heck do you budget for that? You know, that's a heck of a change. And so, but they have to pay for it, whether they budgeted or not. And so when you're coming in and saying, okay, here's a program and, you know, there's going to be some extra cost to it, but you're going to have 50% less injuries and you're going to have consistently and predictably 50% less injuries. You would think just saying that makes sense, but then you think about it again, it is in some ways trying to explain to people what the color of a rainbow that doesn't exist, right? Like trying to explain what that color looks like. It doesn't exist in many places. So it often 
I think at first pass just feels like, okay, so I spent 1.4 last year. Now I'm going to spend, you know, 1.4, whatever the cost of the program is. No, no, no. Actually, you know, if you're averaging 1.4 million in cost, you're going to pay about 700,000 next year plus the cost of your program. So you're definitely going to net a positive. And it's really difficult for people to, even if they believe the process works from all the empirical data that we have from 20 years of doing this and, you know, client case studies, even if they do, it's still very difficult for them not to just take the cost and add it on to their average cost. And so that is a paradigm shift. And I think why that's difficult, it's not because, you know, the people in these companies are not intelligent, quite the opposite. But when you think about a $3.5 trillion medical system that is completely based on once there's an injury or an illness, there's action. That is a lot of dollars. And to have an industry that large means everybody follows suit. Everybody waits until they're sick or injured and then goes into it. And this is true in Canada as well. And so when you think about it that way, it's really difficult not to be biased by that. And then here we are saying, here, I got a plan. Why don't you pay out of pocket to prevent that from ever having to need to happen in the first place? And it just takes a while to get that paradigm shift to occur. And then once you do get that to occur, you got to often have multiple stakeholders in different silos of organizations understand that, whether it's safety, risk, HR, operations, and at different levels of all those different silos. So it, it is a long sales cycle, but I think it's truly reflective of the fact that there's a lot of different stakeholders that have to go through a paradigm shift to get them to understand that this is truly something very different. And I think that's really important to realize how how many people are involved. Like this isn't just a, you go to one individual, tell them about the program and it's, oh yes, come on board. It's never that simple. So to have somebody trust us, it's a very complex process that takes a lot of effort. But once that shift has occurred, that's the only way there will be continual change, correct? Is if they've had that shift, if they ever go back, then it's really hard to make those continual changes. No, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, obviously from a sales cycle perspective, if you can take a multiple year sales cycle and knock that in half, you'd think that's going to be good, right? I mean, that's just from a raw, pure growth standpoint, you'd think that would be good. I think there's a ceiling to that to some degree, at least until this becomes more of a norm, because it is educating people on that paradigm shift. And so what we actually look out for is sometimes introducing this program. And if it goes too fast in terms of people understanding it and they skip conversations, they being the client, they want to hasten through the process and skip conversations, we'll actually intentionally slow it down to make sure all the different stakeholders are aware of what's going on, not just, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, next thing. No, no, you need to understand this. It's a very turnkey solution. We're not saying that you have to you know, drop what you're doing and all of a sudden help us the whole entire time that we're here. But you do need to understand that it's a paradigm shift. It's a strategic shift from waiting till the injury happens to let's be completely active to prevent the injury from happening. And all the indirect benefits that Amber asked about earlier that come from that, you know, the cultural impact and those types of things. And so, you know, we actually prefer to have multiple conversations at multiple different levels. We have our experiences on the back end of that. Once you roll out, the impact is even greater when you have those scenarios. I think that just makes those potential clients earn the trust or see the trust even earlier because another company could come in, present what they were going to do, and then throw the dollar science on the table. And it sounds like you guys are, you know, going in at the different levels, you know, making sure everybody's understanding what we're doing and where we're going. And so I think that is a really good footing to get, to get that trust 
started. Absolutely. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. And so with that trust, what is it that, because when you started out, you were in the trenches, correct? What settings did you start off when you were doing Groves Work Ready? Yeah. First contract we had with Groves uh, Work Ready was in a warehousing distribution setting. And I think when you look at the different settings out there, you know, there's different profiles and different reasons for each one of these settings, whether it's construction, manufacturing, warehousing distribution. And warehousing distribution tends to be one with the highest risk because at the end of the day, you have human beings picking up product, putting it on a pallet, and then that pallet goes onto a truck. And then another human being on the other end of the truck has to get it off there. And so there's a lot of human movement in there. And, you know, I think sometimes people think of automation and as if the robots do it all and that stuff's cool. But in reality, even in the automated warehouses, there's still a lot of manual handling that goes on 20, 30,000 pounds a day. So our first foray into this with Groves Work Ready before we were part of Fit for Work was in a warehousing distribution setting. And so with that warehouse, how did that prepare you for the other settings and make Fit for Work be able to grow in the factories and assembly line plants and things like that? You know, I think it's a good one. I mean, it was a tough culture in a sense that there was a lot of mistrust by the workforce. So you had to kind of really distill it down to a human level. Like, okay, I don't care what you're doing, whether you're manufacturing widgets or whether you're moving boxes in a warehouse or doing some deliveries, you have to distill it down to make it digestible and usable for that human, you know, for that person on the other end of it. And then I think when you look at there are things and common elements that are transferable. So when you think about the three leading indicators, early soreness, ergonomics, and behaviors, those things transfer whether you're talking about a warehousing distribution, whether you're talking about manufacturing, construction, utilities, garbage hauling, they all transfer. And there's common elements in particular in and around best practice behaviors. So getting those things down, getting those things down so they're understandable by the workforce, digestible, usable by the workforce, and then extrapolating that into other industries. And of course, as part of Fit for Work, Fit for Work's been around for 20 years. And so they had you know, success in all different facets. So in a sense, we already had that built in. But on a personal learning level, that was kind of how we transferred from the warehouse setting into the manufacturing and, and you know, construction and all the other settings that we're in. What I think is so fascinating is that also we're in the healthcare setting. So it's not just working with individuals in these, man, you know, what we consider the traditional manual labor jobs, but even just working with those that work in a nursing facility and how those can be a forgotten individuals as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You look at skilled nursing facilities or hospitals where you have a lot of patient transfers. And I think those are some of the most dangerous jobs in the world when you look at the number of injuries per capita, in particular in the nursing home. What's interesting is when you we've had multiple discussions and it's interesting what is very common to have happen is you get close to um, getting something off the ground and not in all cases, obviously, but in, in some cases and they say, well, we already have our own physical therapy department or we already have, you know, occupational therapy. And, and it's like, well, then right. why aren't they doing this? And I think that really gets into all physical therapists, occupational therapists and athletic trainers are really trained in a reactive post incident or post injury standpoint. And the way that we leverage the musculoskeletal prowess of these providers is what I always kind of say is an off-label use. If you go out there and act like a normal athletic trainer or a normal physical therapist or occupational therapist in this setting, you're going to cause all sorts of problems. You're going to be completely reactive. 
you need to put that reactivity away and then go out and be on a proactive basis. So there's quite a bit of reprogramming, which is why we invest so heavily in the education piece so we can maintain consistency across you know, our 750 plus sites. But there's a lot that goes into that and in utilizing these providers in an off-label manner. And so it's kind of interesting when you get into, well, we are healthcare, so we know how to do this. And it's quite honestly, some of the worst ones. I always find that a little ironic in that probably the least willing to do the paradigm shift is often the healthcare systems and nursing home facilities. For sure. And, and kind of an interesting story was I did an internship at the Naval Academy working with their men's gymnastics team and their coach actually was the one who told me and I was just meeting him for the first time. And he said, last year was our worst year for injuries. Is there anything you can do to prevent all of our injuries? And for me, that was my first time where I thought, well, I know how to do rehab and maybe we could do prehab <laughs> and having these athletes come in during their lunch break and do exercises to prevent them from getting hurt, working on those smaller muscles that kind of get neglected through the traditional exercise program. And just changing that shift for me came from a coach that was just tired of injuries. And I'm sure that type of similar thing has happened to you with and kind of why people sign up for the program is they're tired for just treating it the same way they've always treated it and seeing the same results, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember having a similar experience in when I was doing my undergrad and I was in athletic training and I was kind of the third in line on the baseball team in spring baseball to be able to get any action. You know, spring baseball, it's cold. You're sitting there and you're sitting there thinking, oh man, I hope something happens. Hope something gets hurt so I can get some action going. And all of a sudden you're, and I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, that's a very perverse thought. We got to change that paradigm. So I think for me, that was you know, I didn't necessarily connect it to, I'm going to go into fit for work and do all it, but that was kind of fueled to the fire, if you will, of there's got to be a better way than just sitting around waiting for all the accidents to happen. And then trying to come in with the shiniest tow truck saying, see, look at us, we got the shiniest tow truck. I'd rather have some pretty cones and waving the flags that aren't nearly as shiny and pretty as a tow truck. But I'd rather do that than have a you know horrific accident and everybody has to get the shiny tow trucks out to get the accident out of there. So I had a very similar experience from that perspective. That's awesome. So yeah, good to know that those mind shifts are happening. We got so many questions that we would love to continue asking you because we could probably spend a few hours. So we will definitely be having you back as long as you'll have us. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Um, so any final questions from you, Amber, that you'd like to get no, this has been great. As a fairly recent hire, uh, I've just been with Fit for Work for six months now. It's great to hear your perspective and kind of your direction and, and sight of where we're going and where we've been. So thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. And I look forward to uh, our next meeting. Sounds great. Hey, we'll come again shortly. So thank you again, everybody. We appreciate your time and talk to you later. So Amber, that was a lot of fun for our first podcast. Not going to say we were perfect, but I think it was an enjoyable time. What did you think? What were some of the highlights for you? Well, we made it through. So that was good for our very first podcast ever. <laughs> Just for those of you listening, Curtis and I, we have zero background in radio or television or anything. Our background in this goes back to church musicals. <laughs> I think pretty much for both of us, right? There you go. <laughs> Way back in high school. So the fact that we just made it through an interview with a Fit for Work CEO, basically without even any bloopers for the blooper role, I am really, really pulling for. I think we did a good job. 
But it was good to hear John's perspective on the fit for work model, just really hammering home that prevention and being more preventative than reactive and just how fit for work is really leading the way in this whole injury prevention model. And the thing that I love about it is that it's not him trying to blaze it alone. I get to feel a part of it. You get to feel a part of it. Hopefully our listeners can feel a part of it, that it can be a movement that can change lives and we don't have to be on an island. You know, there's support that we can receive and it's just such a bigger picture than us as an individual. And that's when things actually change. It's not when one person does it. It's when that person leads an idea and then we all join in on that idea. Yeah, and I think it was a great idea to start with, John, just so that our listeners can get a good perspective on where we're headed with this podcast as well. So that, you know, if you're the site safety person at one of our clients, if you're a client, an industry looking to be a client, or even if you're a fit for work provider, knowing that you're not out there on an island, there is this whole group of us behind you. We're coming for you and we're going to give you some good information as far as injury prevention. Definitely. I love that. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Workplace Injury Prevention of Fit for Work podcast. We are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please visit our website at wellworkforce.com or email us podcast at wellworkforce.com with any questions or comments. And remember, prevention improves lives. Prevention improves lives.